On the Empire podcast this week, we'll be getting our totalitarian on with the dictator, storming an apartment building with the raid, talking Moonrise Kingdom with Wes Anderson, and learning about Men in Black 3 from Barry Sonnenfeld. Hello, the listeners. I'm Helen O'Hara, and welcome to the Empire podcast, your weekly dose of film news, interviews, reviews, and dodgy punning. Faced with the task of regime change and crime control this week, I've assembled a SWAT team of film-reviewing talent. First up is Phil DeSemlin, Supreme Generalissimo of Art House and Foreignness. And yes, I'm mixing metaphors there. How are you doing? Very well, thank you very much, Helen. Where's Chris? Uh, Chris is in Cannes, thank you for asking. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, along with, I believe, your brother. Um, He's not my brother. He's not. As we've established. You just share a a very unusual surname and happen to work in the same office. That's correct. Nepotism. Strange strange coincidence. And uh, today we also have, it's a small team today, we also have a special guest appearance from our very own Bruce Lee, um, Ollie Richards. Hello. Hello. Hey. I'm kind of confused by being your very own Bruce Lee. I was kind of trying to think of something that would kind of link to the raid but not be obvious and I was doing martial arts. I'm okay with it. It just seems not very apt. No. Well, it's not, I'll be honest. You have two arms and two legs and that's about it. But I'm alive. (laughs) Well, a little bit soon, Ollie. A little bit soon. Now, all week you've been decanting your thought sherry into our comment goblets via tweets, Facebook messages and emails. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't get away with that at all, did I? Anyway, let's take a look at some of this week's crop. At Cringe Radio asks, is there a Marvel character that you'd like to see get a movie who hasn't already? Now, you've, we've really chosen the right guest for this today because we've got um, Ollie, I actively avoid comics, <laughs> Richards, and Phil, I don't know anything unless it's in German, uh, Dissemblin, So They've pretty much done all the ones I know of. <laughs> and you know of them because... They, they were in films. Yeah. <laughs> I've read some comics, I've read approximately seven. Oh, well, well done, yep. Well, well you name some who should get their own films and I might know who they are um, I don't know I quite like Scarlet Witch I think you could do something interesting with her yeah yeah I'm with that oh that wow okay good. great so uh, so there we go Scarlet Witch we're all on board is there a Captain Azerbaijan there isn't but maybe there's a there's a space for that in the in the Marvel universe what about Ant-Man can I just say Ant-Man <laughs> why you, am I even saying Ant-Man are you possibly basing this on last week's chat with Edgar Wright I might be okay but you know we would like to see Ant-Man I think it's fair yes. to say so yes well done but that's my theory that he actually was in the Avengers we just couldn't really see him what because he was small. he's tiny so he was just there so it was the smallest of cameos then yeah exactly oh, oh dear that was a terrible pun ladies and gentlemen Ollie Richards um at Adam of England uh, asks, due to the success of Avengers, do you think DC will hit us with a Justice League movie and who would feature? Now, Ollie, you and I were discussing this just the other day. On Twitter just yesterday. How My apt. Goodness. Um, yes. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it kind of come, comes back into being. I know mm-hmm. there is the feeling that um, they would need to set up some more. Like with uh, Christian Bale finishing as Batman, they yep. need to establish a new one and uh, see how the new Superman does. Uh, but I can kind of see it working as almost an introduction to new characters. Mm. Like Marvel has taken the model of we'll have the films and lead up to the big one. Yeah. But I think you could just as well do here's the big one and then we can use that to feed off onto other films. Well, I mean, yes, possibly. Uh, I think it's it's a bit weird this because, you know, obviously they were talking about it a few years ago. It was George Miller, I yes. think, was going to make it. And it was going to be kind of young Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, yeah. etc., kind of getting together as very, very young kind of college students and doing their thing from there, which would have gotten around the whole establishing everybody. I don't problem, like that I idea. Guess. I don't like that idea either, but I'm not sure how else you do it because I think, I think even watching the Avengers actually, you had a 
there were people clearly having a bit of trouble catching up on who the heck Mark Ruffalo was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And they, a lot of his jokes in the early part of the film fell a little bit flat in a couple of screenings I went to because people clearly didn't quite get that he was the Hulk. Right, okay. Um, and I think you might have the same problem if you're trying to set up some random newcomer as Bruce Wayne. Maybe. For example. Maybe. I was Yes, uh, I think the Superman and Batman thing would get people in. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I get, that would be the complicated part. But I think if you were setting up people like The Flash... Uh, Wonder Woman. I think that's the right way to do them. Mm. Don't do the standalone one first. Test them out. Because, you know, with Hulk, he had two of his standalone films and they didn't work. No. And then they put him as part of something else and they kind of work out what works about him. Yeah. Okay. So that, yeah, I I mean, I kind of feel like it could be done. I just feel like it's very difficult. I mean, the first X Men movie, for example, found that it's quite difficult to introduce an entire world and entirely new characters all at once and give everybody some kind of character moment, give them something to do. And I think that's always the danger. When you throw in a bunch of characters in the first movie and you're introducing all of them, you end up having to spend like 90% of your time doing exposition and it doesn't leave a lot of time for anything else. I mean, people complain that the, the first half hour of the Avengers is all scene setting. Imagine if it was the first hour. Mm. You know? yeah, true, but uh, again, if you're scene setting with stuff people don't already know, then it's not so bad. I think the Avengers, if it is slow for the first half an hour, it's kind of a bit retreading over stuff. Mm. That it's the catch-up. It's previously on the Avengers. <laughs> um, it could be done. I think it'd be complicated, but I can see it working. If the writing's as good as jo- Joss Whedon's was for the Avengers, then yeah. that exposition isn't a problem because it doesn't feel like exposition. Yeah, I didn't sit there thinking, wow, the Avengers are coming together and here's all their backstories being played out. People <laughs> that don't really understand the comic book world. And we're just waiting for the action to happen I really really enjoyed that was probably the bit of the movie I enjoyed almost the most because it was just that well done and yeah. that, that smart I agree but it has to be that well done and I think that's the really it does difficult. and that's, that's the challenge really I guess for, for Justice League yeah. yeah of course so yes yes what was the question <laughs> <laughs> who would you like to direct if it were to be done it'd be obvious to say Joss Whedon wouldn't it no I mean, honestly I think it needs to be somebody who can really handle large groups who can you know cram in some character as well as some action I mean, there's, there's a really short list of people who could do that. Mike Lee. Um, Alfonso Cuaron. Mike Lee. Mike Lee. <laughs> Not Mike Lee. No offence, Mr. Lee. Um, Alfonso Cuaron, maybe he did a good job with Harry Potter. You know, we're looking yeah, for gravity. That'd be interesting. Um, what about Guillermo? Guillermo del Toro, he could add it to his list of 60 billion <laughs> things, things to do. Would, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's obviously got a, a great... You want a great storyteller, but also someone who can really handle a large group of characters and, and give them all something, give them mm. all equal time. And I think that's a key true okay good question yes thank you adam that was a good one um okay uh phil gowers asks i found the avengers movie cliched and predictable am i subnormal yes you are that's very a mean thing to say phil but i didn't say it he said it but certainly i would Phil, you're not from another phil seek professional help i'd say less i don't agree with him but i think subnormal would be unfair okay we're we're quite on an island of one perhaps (laughs) Uh, Jim Chilton asks, any news on when Richard Branson is to begin arranging commercial flights to LV-426? Not as far as I'm aware. Why would you want to go to LV-426? Yeah. That's like a terrible Join idea. us on a fabulous commercial flight t- to get killed horribly by a savage alien. Possibly. Oh. Aliens, TBC. <laughs> They've got to be there somewhere, right? Okay, um, Kieran Doyle asks, following the great oh, well. being Elmo, which film would be improved with a puppet in the starring role? And he immediately hashtags abduction. Taylor Lautner replaced by a puppet? My goodness. 
Any any thoughts on that? I mean, the question is, would you notice the difference, really, on that one? Um, <laughs> Depends on the colour of the puppet, I suppose. I can't think of any films that would be hurt by having a puppet in the starring <laughs> role, but they would become very different films. Mm. Lawrence of Arabia. I'd watch it. Apocalypto. Yes. Didn't the Muppets <laughs> kind of do this with all of their pre-Muppets kind of teasers when they were doing like well, the Muppet with the Dragon yeah, Tattoo? That's true. Muppet with the Dragon Tattoo. And they all worked. And they were all very good. So all yeah. of them. Really. So we've learned something. All films should star the Muppets. All films should star the Muppets. You heard it here first. Uh, Ray Pritchard asks, what was the first movie that you went to the cinema twice in the same week to see? He says his was Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Um, I saw Mission Impossible twice in one week. Okay. I saw, I think I saw it three or four times at the cinema. It's the film I've seen most at the cinema. Wow. Uh, I think mine's probably The Matrix, which I think I saw six times in Dole. That's a lot of times. At the cinema. You saw it six times at the cinema? I really like The Matrix. Well, no shit. Yeah. And then The Lord of the Rings, I saw a lot of times each. That's a lot of time to dedicate to the cinema, seeing all the Lord of the Rings. Well, at that times. point, I had a, a card for a certain cinema chain, which allowed me to go multiple times. So that was good. And now you've seen the Avengers, what, 53 times? Well, in the only past four, fortnight. but I still need to get hold of an IMAX screening, so I probably will go back at least once more. Yeah, I know. Just you're embarrassed to be seen with me. That's fine. Okay, and final question this week. Tom Wright asks Which fictional film universe would you like to live in? Toontown. Toontown. Yeah, that'd be cool. From Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes. That that is a pretty awesome answer. It's I'll obviously crime ridden and corrupt, but yeah. it would be pretty cool. Ollie, I think he might have just stolen your answer. I yeah, know that's I like, one of your like favourite films. It is, it is. It's my second favourite film. After? After Rear Window. But you wouldn't want to live there, right? Uh, no, you wouldn't, no. <laughs> In the allotment. It's very crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Grace Kelly high chance there. of murder, so. Where would I want to live? I don't know. Where do the Muppets live? I'd like to live there. <laughs> In the Muppets? <laughs> yes. Okay. Just wherever the Muppets happen to be. I'm not sure which I'd like. I'd, I'd quite like a, fi- a fictional film universe where there's like magic or superpowers or dragons or something exciting, you know. As opposed to, like, offices and things. As long as I also had, you know, a toilet. It's a lot of stress. Right. Now, if you still want to get in touch with us after all of that, and perhaps join the storied ranks of those whose messages have been read out on air, then just drop us a line. You can tweet us using the hashtag EmpirePodcast, email us at podcast at empireonline.com or Facebook us at Empire Magazine. We are also willing to accept messages on scrolls of parchment hand-delivered by men in tights and a doublet, so that's also an option. Um, Now, as ever, we'll be turning our gimlet gaze on this week's movie news, but first it's time for another listener-created jingle. And this one is from a mysterious figure known only as Manny. And we don't think it's the guy from Black Books, but, you know, it would be nice to think that it was. Here we go. There's okay. not a lot of jing in that jingle. That was that was quite, quite dramatic. quite gritty and urban and dark. Yeah, I feel what much more exciting to, now. What happened to Melody Eel? Do you uh, think he's in Cannes? He, he, hasn't, uh, he hasn't sent anything in this week. We've got a, a new contributor. So, Man- Manny, thank you very much. Thank you, Manny. Do you think you can do better? Uh, we'd like to see you try. Uh, no, really, we would like to see you try. So uh, send us your jingles or stings of no more than 15 seconds, please, to podcast at empireonline.com. Budding John Williams is out there. This could be your big chance. Right, now it's time to talk about this week's movie news. First up, I think, is is a story from all our childhoods. Uh, Paddington Bear might be coming to the screen. Isn't that right? That's correct. Helen, Paddington Bear is coming to the screen. And the man behind it um, is Harry Potter producer David Heyman. 
um, yeah. who picked up the right to Michael Bond's book series mm -hmm. um, about the bear from darkest Peru who finds his way through a variety of mishaps, trials and tribulations <laughs> to Paddington Station and ends up living in West London. Eating um, lots of marmalade. Eating an awful lot of marmalade. Mm. Um, giving people hard stares, getting into scrapes and mishaps. And um, David Heyman has hired Mighty Bruce director and the man behind mm. Bunny and the Ball, mm -hmm. um, Paul King, to direct this and write it. And that sounds promising. It's happening this year. Um, mm. And it's going to be a combination of live action um, with a CG bear, the harder things. <laughs> Yeah, because it's quite it's quite hard to get a small bear to wear Wellingtons and a duffel coat. I would like someone to try though. I kind of feel like I'm not the target audience for this film. You but are I think the target audience. For this that's film, an interesting choice of director. It I like you. that. It is an interesting choice hmm. of director. It's not. I mean, his animation style, and we saw some of the the the, the cutout animation in Bunny and the Ball, was really influenced by Ivor Wood, who's the man that, that mm -hmm. kind of brought Paddington Bear to the to, to the screen in our sort of childhood days. In the t the TV series, which was sort of two D animation. Exactly. It was yeah. kind of. I think the bear was three D, and everything yeah. behind him was two D. Yeah. Sort and of it line was, drawings. And exactly things. line drawings. It was a combination of stop frame animation and yeah. and uh, paper hmm. cutouts. Um, that's not going to be the look of this film okay. but hopefully some of that kind of aesthetic will filter through and mm. it certainly did in Bunny and the Ball yeah. so he's got, yeah, I think it's you know, if you love Mighty Boosh like a lot of people do it's gonna be, he's got a quirky, should we say, idiosyncratic mm. kind of sense of humour, which I think will fit in pretty well with Paddington Bear in a wood, but it's a little bit like trying to imagine Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> and somehow, that like, from out different well. poles, they yeah. kind of coalesce into something really cool and mm. the, the spirit of the two seems to gel. And I think that this might be the same thing. I, I remember Paddington as, yeah. you know, it's a, a fish out of water story, I guess, isn't it? Like yeah. he's in London and, and I, I, I gather they're still writing the books. There's sold something like 35 million of them. So they're kind of beyond Twilight in terms of popularity. <laughs> no, surely not. But apparently Paddington fans aren't quite as fanatical as, as Twilight fans. So that's some reassurance to, to Paul. That um, would help a little bit. It, it reminds me, weirdly, of the Winnie the Pooh that that uh, Disney brought out last year because that was, uh, on one hand, very traditional and very faithful to the Winnie the Pooh books. And on the other hand, um, was quite surreal in a weird way and quite bizarre because Winnie the Pooh and Friends interacted with the text of the books yeah. as if there were pages turning and they would sort of hang off letters and use the letters in the books to make a ladder and things like that and I'm not saying this will be that way it won't be done the same way but it just feels like it might have a bit of the same kind of no, I very think so. gentle whimsy to it. I'm sure it will and, and I think he, Paul King is very you know, and David Heyman as well, very mm. keen to sort of cleave closely to the spirit so there was going to be marmalade sandwiches under his hat going to be a Peruvian bush hat he's going to have a duffel coat do you think it's difficult to make this kind of thing charming if you're putting CG in with live action like the ones who said are successful like mm. Fantastic Mr Fox and Winnie the Pooh all animation yeah. and then you can be a little bit weird with that but when I think CG animal character put in with live action Garfield comes to mind it's let a, us I mean, never I, say that again I'm not saying it can't be done mm. I'm just saying it's much more difficult to make a bit of CG charming Possible, but then you've got Babe, which had a bit of CG actually. Only on his mouth, I believe. Well, hmm. yeah, but around the place, the mice and things. No, they were real talking mice. Okay. Um, do you think they should bring anyone, in like? If anyone knows the, the best from... way to let Ollie down on that, uh, <laughs> do get in touch. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna destroy his illusions. You should see his little face. I'm, I'm sure if Werner Herzog was directing this film, they'd bring in an actual bear. 
um, and just dunk it in Portobello and see what happens. <laughs> that, I want to see that one. <laughs> They'd probably just replace it with a, with a large through, lizard instead. Through West London. I know, I take your point. I mean, but I, I think that with a good story and a good script and, you know, a f- certain fidelity to this character that everybody loves so much, mm. um, that will be, you know, avoid the, the, the pitfalls that Garfield certainly had. Okay, and how about the rest of the news this week? There's uh, There's been movement on El Presidente, hasn't there? Yes, which has apparently been around for a couple of years, mm. but I can't say I remember it. Um, <laughs> but it's back in the news this week because there's potential casting change. Um, it's about a bodyguard right. who is defending a sleazy ex-president. Ooh. And the bodyguard is probably still okay. being played by Tom Cruise, who was mooted originally. Yep. But the sleazy president has possibly changed from Jack Nicholson to Robert Downey Jr., Ooh. Yes, so I think that's interesting. Yeah. And um, Jay Roach is supposed to be directing. So okay. I think there's a lot of elements in that that could work a lot. Yes. Robert Downey Jr. as a sleazy ex-president, I think we'd be on board with, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's not. It's still not certain. I mean, none of these None of these are official right. yet. They're apparently being discussed. And it's not known which, actually, which role Tom Cruise would take and which one Robert Downey Jr. would take. And I could see either working. Yeah, it would be quite fun to kind of play against type and have Tom Cruise as the sleazy guy, which he's kind of playing this summer in Rock of Ages uh-huh. in a rock star way. Take that, take a little bit of that. Add it, make it a bit presidential. He's good at that. I Halfway think. between yeah. Rock of Ages and Lions for Lambs. And he's done Tropic Thunder as well, so yep. I think he's kind of yeah. shown... And he's he pretty sleazy in Magnolia, you'd have to say. So he can do sleaze. So he can yep. definitely do that. Okay. I just think that's a great combination of people. Mm. Yeah. I'll watch pretty much anything those two want Have to they played together, together before? Rob, uh, Tropic Thunder. Good not, point, oh, yes. They didn't share but a screen, not but, screen but they were both there. But yeah, I mean, it's one, of those, it's one of those A-list combinations where you're like, of course, why have we not seen this before? Yeah. Um, so I think, okay, that sounds promising. We'll keep an eye on that as it goes forward. Also heard confirmation this week that Julianne Moore is going to uh, join the remake of Carrie. So she'll be playing uh, the Piper Laurie role in the original, um, the mother to Chloe Grace Moretz's Carrie. So that's, I think, uh, again, good news. Yeah, excellent news. Yeah. Yeah. It is great news. And again, and kind of interesting to see her play that role because that character mm. is... <laughs> I don't even know if I'm allowed to say batshit demented, but she's in, you know, insane. She's demented. Yeah, properly insane. And I don't think we've seen Gene Moore playing someone quite as out there before. Not to that level that I can mm. think of, but I think that's great casting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, even though the original is a classic, I think it's kind of ripe for a, me- a remake anyway. Mm. It'll be as long as they take a slightly different approach and yeah. give it a slight, their own spin. I think it could be could be a good thing. So yay for Julianne Moore. Yes. Yay for Carrie. Well done, Julianne Moore. Okay, well done, you guys. And uh, also this week, in the least surprising news the world has ever seen, the Avengers has broken a billion dollars at the worldwide box office in 19 days, equaling uh, the record. Uh, and that's with only 12 days release in the US, which is which is pretty terrific. I think, honestly, the important thing here is that it does better than Transformers Dark of the Moon. And I think if it does that, even if it stays behind Avatar and Titanic and Harry Potter up there, that will be OK, because we'll have kind of struck a blow for not being rubbish yes. and making lots of money. Yes. I think that would be good. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of pretty much dead on to be the biggest of the summer. I can't see anything. Even Batman, I can't see surpassing that now. Well, we'll have to see. But uh, but yeah, it's looking good. Okay, before we get on to this week's reviews, we also had a recent visit from director Barry Sonnenfeld, who's the man who brought us one Get Shorty, two Adams Families, and now three Men in Blacks. So here's what he had to say about his latest return to Ray-Bans and Sharp Suits. Could you tell us the story of how this film happened? Because it is a long one. It's uh, been more than a few years in the making. And even the actual process, the production, 
has been complicated, shall we say. So how did Men in Black 3 happen? Uh, I was on the set directing Men in Black 2 uh, in 2001. It was 4 a.m. We were in L.A. It was cold. It was dark. And uh, I was tired. But then there's this ball of energy, which is Will Smith, who comes in, sits down right next to me. He calls me Baz, B-A-Z. He goes, hey, Baz, I got the plot for Men in Black 3. Now, remember, we're on Men in Black 2 still shooting. <laughs> he says, I got the plot of Men in Black 3. Here it is. Uh, the movie opens up, and like Men in Black headquarters is destroyed or something, and I can't find Tommy Lee Jones's character, you know, Kay. I can't find Kay. Uh, I look everywhere, and I realize that a villain has jumped back in time to some previous era, and I've got to travel back in time to save Tommy Lee Jones's character, and in doing so, uh, I and the audience find out things that we never expected about everything. And I looked at Will and said, can we just finish this one? <laughs> and that was 2001. Now it's 2012. Men in Black 2 had come out. Many years have gone by. And we realized that we wanted to sort of reinvent the franchise. We knew what worked, which was a relationship between Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. But we felt that by adding time travel going back to, as it turns out, 1969, having young Agent K, uh, we could sort of both have the best of the old and recreate the franchise. Some critics said of Men in Black 2 that it used a lot of the beats of Men in Black 1. It kind of played around. Right. Were you conscious of not doing that for the third one? We all felt that although Men in Black 2 had some good things about it, that ultimately we were disappointed in it. And that w here's what went wrong. First of all, we... we thought the Men in Black franchise was a comedy, and it really isn't. It's really about relationships. It's about other things. And that Men in Black 2 was just too funny. We went back to the well too many times. There was too much Frank the Pug and Jeebs. And so we very specifically wanted to make sure we weren't doing another caper, another just someone comes uh, t uh, to Earth and tries to destroy it and our guys save the day. And in addition, we also felt we didn't have a particularly good villain in two. We had a combination of Johnny Knoxville and Laura Flynn Boyle, but there was no... Your, your heroes are only as heroic as your villain is mean. And after uh, Vincent D'Onofrio in the first one, we felt that we had uh, laid off a little bit too much on, on villains. So all those things were reasons why in Men in Black 3, you only see Frank the Pug in one shot. You don't see Jeebs. You know, we, we didn't want to go back to that same well of jokes again. What's the process like when you finish a film like Men in Black 2? And, you know, it did really well at the box office. Critics didn't really warm to it in the same way that they did the first film. Do you kind of forensically go through and, and think about the things that didn't work and, you know, listen to what audiences are saying and kind of work that into the treatment for, for the next one? I mean, this was 10 years ago, so right. I, guess, I guess the idea has kind of evolved quite a lot since then. But is that in your mind always when, you, when you're a filmmaker? The truth is, at least in my case, a good filmmaker already knows what's wrong with their movie <laughs> or what works for their movie. You still learn things while you're showing the film to recruited audiences because usually wherever you think the problems are when you're making the movie are not. 
But by the time you're done, you know what went wrong, what went right. And, uh, in fact, what happened with me is I directed a movie called Get Shorty a, a long time ago, and it got very good reviews, and I started to read the reviews. And I said to my wife, who I call Sweetie, hey, Sweetie, listen to this. And she stopped me, and she said, if you read and validate the good reviews, you yeah. have to read and validate the bad reviews. So do you want to read reviews? And after that first review on Get Shorty, which was a good one, I stopped reading reviews and haven't read a single review. Now, having said that, <laughs> I happen to know, in spite of reading reviews, that Men in Black 2 is not well-received. But um, the way... Everything that was wrong or right with Men in Black 1 or Men in Black 2, I knew because I made the movies. So, um, and, you know, Will and I talk about that a lot, and Will Smith and I made sure we we knew what was working for the franchise and what we didn't want to go back to again. Yeah. You talked uh, earlier about, you know, having a big bad. So, Jermaine Clement, was he, was it a case of you watching Flight of the Concords and going, you know what, I'm going to make him an absolute animal? I'm going to turn him into a big monster. <laughs> no one looks at Jermaine Clement in Flight of the Concords and says, there's a badass <laughs> mother who's going to really be the ultimate villain. Yet, Jermaine is incredibly good in the movie, and here's what happened. And he's a really good villain. Uh, uh, the producer, Walter Parks, had uh, been working with Jermaine on Flight of the Concords, and uh, I'm sorry, on uh, Dinner for Schmucks and said, you should meet Jermaine. I think he's great. He's a great improvisational guy. Well, the funny thing is, Men in Black has never been improvisational. We don't, like, show up on the set with cameras and say, guys, pretend like you're, like, angry and having a horrible dinner together. You know, it's all worked out ahead of time. But in spite of that, I met Jermaine. He's tall. He's got the deepest voice of anyone I've ever met. And I knew he'd be great. And we got him into five hours every day of Rick Baker makeup. So part of, I think, what allowed him to be so mean was getting up at two in the morning and showing up to the set for five hours of makeup. And what's very funny is Jermaine has a very thick New Zealand accent. And I love Flight of the Concords, just love it. But when I would sit and have dinner, just myself and Jermaine, I literally could not understand a <laughs> word he was saying because it's so thick so because I'm bossy and I'm the director I told Jermaine whenever we were together whenever we were having any meetings or dinner he had to only speak in a high British accent <laughs> so I would have dinner with Jermaine at a New York City restaurant and it would sound like I was having <laughs> dinner with Queen Elizabeth some of my favorite bits in the first two films and also in this one as well are the big screens with people's faces on them. And I remember pointing at the screen when Steven Spielberg and uh, Sly Stallone are on the big screen. How does that happen? Do you just do you have to ask permission or you just put them up? Uh, you know, in all three Men in Blacks, we one of the things we have is at the headquarters, we have this surveillance screen where you see who are truly aliens and, and we have to keep surveillance on them. I think also Michael Jackson was in the first one. Lucas and Spielberg... Uh, and in uh, the second one, Martha Stewart was in it. So you you have to ask permission. Uh, and in this one, there were several funny incidents. Um, there's Justin Bieber. Uh, my main reason, most people think it's for because he's sort of young and so successful. I think it's because he's Canadian. 
Uh, I have a theory about Canadians. There's a reason why they're like more lovely than anyone else and kind. And if you've uh, spent time in Canada, their homes and apartments almost look like what real homes and apartments look like. <laughs> but it's 3% off. So my theory is that aliens took lots of photos of America, <laughs> sent it to their native planet, but in transmission, 2.3% got garbled. <laughs> so the aliens came down, inhabited upper North America. Anyway, back to the surveillance. I never thought Tim Burton was an alien. I think he knows other aliens. He may have a uh, several children with an alien. So they keep surveillance on him to see what aliens he's hanging out with. But Tim was very willing to be in it. Uh, we also had to give all the aliens alien names and real names. So Lady Gaga's alien name is Lady Gaga. <laughs> um, hiding in plain sight. Hiding in plain sight. And uh, Barbara Streisand, which uh, she's on very shortly, but she was on it and she said, I need a name. So the name I made up was Babs of Newtonia. And I get an email, uh, I, I can't accept that name. Okay, <laughs> why? Because the word Newt is too close to Newt Gingrich, who's a, a, an American <laughs> politician, and she wanted to make sure she was not supporting his cause because he was running for president at the time. So there's a lot of intricacies. It's amazing we're still not working on Men in Black 1 at that level of sort of detail that you have to go through. And I think it's just a throwaway gag, and I just think, oh, they just put up Sly's image. Nope. Nope. Mm. All requested, all lawyers, uh, you know, you go through a lot. This David is what, Beckham. This is why it took 10 years to make. <laughs> just <laughs> trying right. to get Barbara Streisand to respond to her emails. Right. I, I, I think that the next one, we, we may have to just do away with surveillance. Yeah. <laughs> is it true, you mentioned Michael Jackson, and, and I know that he was a big fan. Mm -hmm. Is it true that he watched the first Men in Black and was quite emotional, um, overawed? And then you spoke to him about potentially appearing in the second one. Uh, I wasn't there, but I hear he loved the first Men in Black, was uh, desperate to be in the second one. I did not approach him. He approached Sony and said, I think he basically said, if you want my next album, I must be a Men in Black. I mean, he really, wow. really was using whatever power he had at Sony to be... And Men in Black, and I thought it would be great if he were an alien, but he wanted to be an agent. So he he said, I've got to wear the black suit. I've got to wear the black suit. So we made him an agent in training. We shot him against blue screen on the set. And if you remember the movie, we then, in post, I, I'm trying to decide where, where he should be, and I decided Antarctica. So there's icebergs, and I uh, just... He never knew he was in Antarctica when we were shooting. No one knew. But, you know, post-production can be a long and boring process. And I said, yeah, let's find some photos from Antarctica. You mentioned um, the tone and, and, and bringing out the comedy by kind of not forcing it and not trying to make it funny. And I kind of wonder, because tone is so difficult to master, especially when you're kind of between genres in a way that, say, Tim Burton's Dark Shadows was. Adam's Family, did you tackle that in the same way? Was it kind of, you know letting the comedy come out kind of organically and, and getting your cast to act it pretty straight throughout or uh, yeah you know I grew up with the Charles Adams drawings from the New Yorker magazine I was not a fan necessarily of the television show but his drawings were very dark very macabre 
and also very much like my philosophy about movies he didn't show you where the joke was you kind of had to figure it out on the page when we cast Adam's family we didn't cast any comedians Rao Julia Angelica Houston and in fact with Angelica because she hadn't done comedies before and thought she needed to be funny my direction to Angelica was always flatter don't comment on the joke uh, just you know you're not trying to be funny and she she got it but her instinct because she hadn't done comedies knew it was a comedy was to go towards comedy so my direction to everyone on that movie although no one was flatter or needed any direction less than Christina Ricci who sort of like was born to play you know Wednesday Adams but so for me uh, very much so uh, don't cast uh, comedians and if you do you never want more than one funny person in your movie. <laughs> you get two funny people in your movie, it's a disaster. Always stick with one. Mm. I mean, you're talking about not having uh, too many funny people in one film. You had Wild Wild West where you had... You read my mind. Yeah. Please you got, go on. You got Kevin Klein twice, if I remember correctly. Again, Will Smith and Kevin Klein. who's going to be the straight man? Yeah. And it's, it's funny you ask that because originally the movie was designed where... Kevin Klein's character was a straight man and Will was the f the funny guy. That's the way it was designed. You only want one funny guy. You only want George Burns and Gracie Allen. You don't want two Gracie Allens. <laughs> it's not going to work. Be a nightmare. Be a nightmare and they'd still be talking. And early on, Will Smith and I realized that Kevin was not going to be the straight man. That everything about Kevin's sort of instincts and desires were leading him towards being the funny guy and throughout rehearsals I, I just couldn't get him to to be the other one and Will who sh exactly shares my philosophy looked at me one day after rehearsals and said hey Baz and I said I know what you're going to say Will and he says yeah it looks like I'm the straight man on this one so we literally changed sort of the plan yeah Many things went wrong with that movie, but one of the biggest things, which doesn't go wrong with Men in Black, is the audience felt no chemistry between Will and Kevin. The audience instantly feels chemistry between Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, and you could not have at least, if you were writing down attributes on paper, two more different people. Mm -hmm. Same with the chemistry between Josh Brolin and Will. We were very worried, Will and I, the only way we could screw this movie up is by not having Tommy Lee Jones in two-thirds of the movie and replacing him with someone that makes the audience go, wait, you guys had a formula that was working and now mm. you screwed it up by bringing some guy in and not Tommy? The brilliance of Brolin is the audience just thinks, oh yeah, now we're watching younger Tommy Lee Jones. There's no like disconnect. And you literally forget all that and you just think you're watching Agent K, old Agent K, young Agent K. Mm. They just happen to be played by different people, but it's the same character. Men in Black 3 will be out next Friday, so we'll be reviewing that in next week's podcast. Now, the chance to win something cool. 
Yes, do the dance of joy, people, because it's competition time. Uh, last week, we offered you the chance to win all four seasons of True Blood on Blu-ray, and we had a flood of entries, but the lucky winner was Victoria Thompson. So, Victoria, congratulations. This week, we have five copies of the fantastic The Descendants on Blu-ray also, uh, which is out from 20th Century Fox on Monday, May 21st. So, to be in with the chance of winning one of these, you need to tell us the name of George Clooney's character in ER, his big breakout role. What was the character he played? Just send us your answers to podcast at empireonline.com and we'll let you know if you've won this time next week. And that is a film worth winning, right, guys? Yes, it is. I know the answer. Can I Can I enter? No, you can't tell oh, the that's answer. disappointing. Sorry. I know you're just trying to be helpful. Now, before we get on to this week's reviews, we have time for one more quick interview. And this one is extremely exciting. We spoke to Indu Guru and director Wes Anderson about his new film, Moonrise Kingdom, which is screening this week at Cannes. And here's what he had to say. So Wes, thanks very much for joining us. Um, how are you doing? Very good, thank you for having me. So uh, Moonrise Kingdom is set in the 60s and it involves Boy Scouts. Where did the story come from? Um, well, the story came from... I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to make a movie that was about a, um, a romance between two uh, 12-year-olds. Uh, and um, I, you know, I would say kind of inspired by the... Uh, uh, Francois Truffaut movie Small Change that, that that's about a world of children um, you know their world um, and thinking of some things in my own experience that where how how um, how powerful some emotions and experiences at that age are where and I remember how uh, when I would be in the middle of reading a, a novel that I loved I would almost lose a sense of what is reality and what is the book and uh, that that sort of desire for fantasy. That those are some of the things that I wanted to kind of get into this movie. Now, there's Troop Fifty Five in the movie, which I googled, and apparently there is a Troop Fifty Five in Houston, Texas, which is where you're from. Is that a coincidence? Or no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about your scouting experience, if you haven't. Uh, well, I was just briefly in that troop, but I, you know, I probably um, it's probably not even legal that uh, we use Troop Fifty Five. I, I no one has ever mentioned it to me. I never. I guess I probably didn't tell anybody. That, that, but a number should be public domain. Uh, whether I happen to have been in Troop 55 at one time, whether that is true or not. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to lie, take this bit out of the podcast. <laughs> so how, you know, how adept are you at scouting? Would you be able to survive in the woods? Um, well, I like to think of myself as a survivor per se. But I will, will, will admit that my scouting skills are largely untested. And um, and uh, and there and there are limits. Um, I, however, I I would say Edward Norton, on the other hand, and I don't know if Edward ever was in the Scouts or not. Um, I don't think he was, but Edward could take the. You know what an Eagle Scout is? Eagle Scout, American Scouts. If you that's that's the epitome of scouting. That's that's the that's the. Uh, the highest rank that you can achieve and, and you know somebody who's graduating from high school in America and they happen to be an Eagle Scout that's considered you know something of an honor uh, even even among people who make fun of Scouts mm-hmm. Edward if he's not an Eagle Scout he could be he's a he's a he's very um, capable in the in the wild so he would be a good guy to go camping with definitely <laughs> okay he'd know he'd know how to handle everything now, on top of that he's a pilot he could, you know, he could fly you out of there if you get in real trouble. <laughs> Would Bill Murray be a good guy to, to go camping with, do you think? 
Yeah, well, Bill is actually very. Bill is similar. Bill, they they share something, which is they're the kind of guys where you could where if you ask them a question, they'll usually give you an answer. They're they're not really particularly guys who can't think of anything to say. Um, and um, and Bill is a you know Bill's the kind of person who knows how to take care of himself, and that's the kind of person who usually take care of everybody else too, should it be necessary. So, how was the actual experience of shooting this film? Because you, you obviously did Fantastic Mr. Fox beforehand, which imagine you were cooped up in a studio making that, and this film is outdoors and in some yeah. amazing locations. Was that, was that a freeing experience? Yeah, well, making Fantastic Mr. Fox was very fun. It, it, a long process, uh, all the phases of filmmaking happening at once, um, but it was you know, a chance to just be adding things and inventing things for the story continuously for a long period of time. And so it was actually not a feeling of, uh, of being stymied in any way. It was re- very exciting and I really kind of walked away from the movie, not only having a great experience making the movie, but with all sorts of things that I, sorts of new techniques and sort of systems that I used as we made this film. But it was great to be able, for the first time in some years, to be on a set with a with a with a group of actors, um, and um, spontaneously, um, you know, uh, bringing the scenes to life, having them bring the scenes to life. And it was also very nice to make a film in America because I hadn't I hadn't done that in many many years. And you've you've assembled another incredible cast, and it's kind of a, an assembly of, of some people you've worked with many times before, and some some great new fresh faces for you. Can you talk us through who plays who? Yes, well we have, um, the, the two main characters are, there's Sam Shikusky and Susie Bishop. They're played by uh, Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward, who are both uh, uh, people who had not, they're students, uh, you know, um, they're middle school students. Uh, they, are, they, they don't have any experience doing this, but um, they were both wonderful. and. Um, and then the rest of the cast is, uh, we have Bruce Willis, who plays the um, island police captain of this uh, little township. Um, and um, we have Edward Norton as the scoutmaster who leads the troop that, um, uh, that Sam Shikosky, that Jared's character Sam is a part of. We have Frances McDormand, who's the mother of the girl, Susie, and Bill Murray, who's her husband, who's the father of the girl. Um, they're Mr. and Mrs. Bishop. They're attorneys. Um, and then we have... Um, Harvey Keitel. We have Harvey Keitel, uncredited, <laughs> um, as the commander of all the scouts. We have Tilda Swinton, who plays a character called Social Services, who is just that. And um, Jason Schwartzman, who is uh, the was sort of like one of those black marketeers of a war movie, but it's for a uh, scout camp. <laughs> it took me a while to recognize him, actually, at first. Jason, yeah, yeah, yeah. But his mustache and his sunglasses. How was it working with Bruce Willis? Because I've just read the new Kevin Smith book, uh-huh. which he dedicates a whole chapter to describing how difficult he found the experience of working with Bruce. Right. I take it that that wasn't your... Uh, experience. No, it wasn't. No, I love working with Bruce. Um, I haven't. I haven't seen what uh, Kevin Smith reports. Um, but um, Bruce was uh, was uh, was great, and um, uh, he was. Uh, you know, when I, when it, I had this idea to approach him, I I don't know. It's a long shot whether Bruce would want to do this. I, I you know I met him very briefly before I didn't know him, um, and. Um, 
and I thought this character would be quite different from anything we've seen him do. It's, he's quite a sad, lonely, reserved person, but he's also a policeman. And if there's anybody who uh, you're going to believe he's the real thing, and he carries a badge, uh, I think Bruce Willis. Um, and um, and he really, um, I felt kind of quite transformed himself, and he was a wonderful part of our company. Um, and um, I had a great experience with Bruce. I remember you saying with Fantastic Mr. Fox that you got everyone out into the forest to before before you did the voices to get everyone kind of bonding. Yeah. Was that the case here? Did you all go out in the woods and, <laughs> or anything like that? Well, it was Mr. Fox, we all went out in the, in the forest and we recorded them and those voices are in the movie. Um, with this, we um, all, you know, there are scenes where the boy and the girl are, are sort of trekking um, uh, and, you know, they're making their way through the wilderness and those scenes we tried to make as much like a documentary as we could. Um, we prepared them quite a bit. We went and actually shot some of these scenes without the kids in them, with, with just playing the parts ourselves to find how we wanted to stage them. Um, uh, and, but then we went out um, with five very small cameras, the size of a sh each one's like the size of a shoe, um, and um, a very small group. And we tried to enact the journey, and uh, and that's uh, that's how we made the scene. And um, you asked Jared to watch the Clint Eastwood movie Escape from Alcatraz, I believe. Mm -hmm, that's true. Um, <coughs> the other films that were kind of touchstones for Moonrise Kingdom. I, I mean, I you know, I told him. To, I, I think I told him to watch Escape from Alcatraz because I wanted him to think of himself as Clint Eastwood, um, <laughs> and, and, uh, which is not like the first thing you, <laughs> that would jump into your mind if you meet him personally. I did screen a film for the cast called Black Jack, that's a Ken Loach uh, film, that's, uh, and that's one of the inspirations for this, and there's another film called Melody. Uh, have you heard of that one? I They're both British films. Um, and um, and uh, Melody um, was, is also an inspiration for, for this movie and um, written by Alan Parker, his first anything, and directed by uh, uh, Waris Hussein, a very good director. And um, uh, anyway, um, th those two were, were maybe the key ones. It also made me think a little bit of the Pixar movie Up, which has obviously, you know, a, it's a very different couple, but it has a Boy Scout and they oh, yeah, go yeah, on that yeah. journey and kind of discover Yes, 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 yes right. Yes, I like that movie, yeah. Well, you know, that was our, that was our um, uh, adversary when we did Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, <laughs> every, every, uh, every award ceremony that I went to, we got to go and watch them win it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, I like, you know, I'm a Pixar fan. Um, so um, I, I like their whole um, their whole body of work. And I wanted to ask more generally. Um, you know, your your work is steeped in other films. Uh, do you see everything at the cinema when it comes out? And what kind of films are you looking forward to seeing this year? Um, I well, I don't see everything when it comes out. Um, I I'm I'm you know just off the top of my head, I'm looking forward to the Odiard film, the Jack Odiard film, because I loved the last one, on Prophet. There was a British film by Richard Ayoade um, called Submarine, Submarine which yeah, still yeah. produced. And um, yeah, I love Submarine. The, all the reviews said, you know, this movie is Wes Anderson-esque, while being its own thing. So yeah. you did enjoy it. I very much, yeah, yeah. I think it, I, I thought it was wonderful. And what have you got coming up uh, next? 
you taking a break? I'm just working on a script for something, a movie that I would like to make in Europe, but I'm just beginning. What do you do when you're unwinding, when you're not on a, on a film set? Uh, I don't do relax. <laughs> That's not really my... That's uh, not something I feel often. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, um, I will say that one of my things I'm most fond of doing is going out to dinner. Um, and um, and then I like to go, you know, I like to go to the theater, and in London especially, um, and, um, you know, um, then just the usual things you would expect. I like to watch movies, I like to read, um, and I like to work. And just as a final question, I'm a huge Bill Murray fan, and um, there's obviously the legend that to get to in contact with him, you have to call his voicemail uh, and leave a message, and he'll call you back. Was that the case with you, or how did you first? No, when I when I first got to know Bill, he had an agent, so um, his agent uh, helped us, you know, uh, get our script to him, and that that that's how it uh, was arranged. But I do remember the first time I spoke to Bill was um, we had sent our script, you know, we'd given the script to the agent, this was for Rushmore, and um, I, everything I had heard was that probably we'll never hear anything and this is just going to disappear. And then um, I was in the office for some reason, a rare occurrence, I was at Disney in the office of the executive that was in charge of our film, Donald Alon is his name, and, um, the, pho- and then the phone rang and they said, uh, we have Bill Murray for Wes. How he had located me in Donald DeLine's office, I have no idea. And Donald DeLine said, take my desk. And he left the room and everybody else left. And I went behind the, you know, the vice president in charge of production's desk. And I spoke to Bill Murray for a solid hour um, about, uh, he was talking about a Kurosawa movie uh, that the script had reminded him of, Redbeard. Uh, which is, of course, a movie about a doctor in kind of samurai samurai territory, say a period, um, and um, uh, it was a strange connection, but interesting. And he was just talking about how it had worked, how it had worked dramatically. And then at some point, you know, it, he said, "Well, all right." And I was so 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 so. Does this? Are you? Uh, did you? Is this like you want to be in it, or what is the thing? Is it, yeah, yeah. Okay. Good, good. Great, great, great. So, <laughs> and that was more or less in the conversation. What did you do when you put the phone down? That must have been I told him he's in. He's in. He wants to be, I'm gonna, we need to get Redbeard. Uh, <laughs> I have some research to do. Um, and, um, and then I think I, maybe I met him a week later. Fantastic. At last, it's time to roll out the red carpet for this week's reviews. Uh, first off, we're off to Indonesia via Wales for The Raid, which is directed by Gareth Evans and stars Iko Iwias. I think it's fair to say that we're a little bit excited about this one, isn't it? Yes, completely. Um, it's terrific. Uh, but I really hope it's not one of those films that is hurt by the hype and expectation before because it completely came out of nowhere. <laughs> yep. I don't think anyone was expecting the action film of the year to come via Wales and Indonesia. No. But it's it's just terrific. I think there's nothing to dislike about it. Mm. It's the simplicity of the idea yeah. and then just perfect execution. It's so imaginative in every action sequence it mm. has. I don't even want to talk about any of them because it will spoil them. But yeah. there's, there's just so many 
brilliant moments in there using various household objects and then just feet and arms <laughs> feet and arms knees and knees and elbows yeah. uh, the whole thing it's uh, just to just to clarify the plot is that basically uh, a SWAT team are sent in to uh, to take an apartment building which is controlled by a drug dealer he's got petty criminals basically living in the whole building so the SWAT team has to fight their way past everybody yeah everybody and yeah. it really is everybody there's yeah. there's there's almost no end to the action in here and it's kind of interesting it's now the first part of a trilogy mm. which uh is i mean it's a good idea i hope they remain at this level be interested to see where it goes because it is so simple it's not it's not setting up some uh, enormous epic it doesn't seem well there's there's some there's some threads at the end that could go on but yes. we won't say yes what those are yeah it's difficult to talk about where it might go without yeah. giving too much away from the end of this one but i, I think outside might be a might not be giving too much away it's this sort of film is i think ferociously difficult to make because they're indoors all the time i think gareth evans was saying that you know they were coming into work at five in the morning leaving at 11 p.m every single night wow. not seeing daylight for the entire duration of the shoot <laughs> and basically sort of kicking the crap out of each other and it's unbelievably visceral mm. and in your face you literally come out like nursing bruises just watching it there were, um, there were several fight scenes uh, with the audience I saw it with and again this is a bunch of hardened critics who don't you know they, they don't do anything in films you get a lot of critics who just sit there and don't laugh mm. they don't cry they don't <laughs> do anything it's terrifying uh, but this this group burst out laughing at the end of several different fight scenes just from sheer release of tension mm. uh, they couldn't believe how uptight they'd been during the scene and one fight in particular near the end of the film there was a huge round of applause there were I mean there were elements I wondered if they'd sped it up it was so mm. what they could do was so ridiculously quick and complex it just amazing I'd like them to go to the valleys of Wales next <laughs> <laughs> That would be a, a true crossover. Swansea. This would work in a small village in Wales, in the Brecon Beacons. Yes. <laughs> I think this would work anywhere. The, the action was just completely astonishing. So what we're trying to say then is that we want people to be really excited about it and go see it, but not be hyped about it to the extent that they're looking for flaws. Yeah. Totally. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's difficult. When we've given it five stars and we all love it, to mm. say, just to say, but like Ollie says, you kind of you don't want to over... It's too late. It's We've too overhyped late. it. We've oversold it. Eesh, hit the fire extinguisher. It is that good, though. It's just, it's like nothing we've really seen for a long time. And and if you love films like Die Hard, this is kind of like Assault in Precinct 13, isn't mm. it? There's John Carpenter, there's Jackie Chan, there's John Bruce Woo. Lee, there's yeah. John Woo, there's Tony all Jar. Of, yeah, Tony Jaa. There's just all of those like high octane film stars and filmmakers have informed this movie. Important and to point out they're not in it. No, but it, no, it's not the Avengers of like martial arts. They're not in it, but they've they've certainly influenced Gareth, and I think he, you know, he wears that on his sleeve. But at the same time, he's got fresh ideas. Yeah, and 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 the scenes are so jarring and so in your face in a very unique way. And also, he's introduced silat, which is a new form of well, new for like mm. Western cinema, um, Indonesian martial art, mixed martial art, um, which is more. He was explaining more graceful, but then full on when they start fighting. There's not really any of the graceful... I couldn't spot any of the graceful bits in this. It's just fighting. It's full on. I was still p pretty graceful that they can do what they do, I suppose. Oh, it's just astonishing. Yeah. Absolutely astonishing. Apparently one guy, one of the stuntmen, fell five metres. He was supposed to fall in the scene, but he missed the crash mat because the wire snapped. <gasps> Got knocked out for ten minutes, taken off to hospital for four days, and then came back and cracked on with, with the next scene. Tough. So, um, yeah, some hard men involved in making this film, but... Mm. Well, that all shows on screen. So, uh, so yes, go see it, but you know, don't be disappointed because you'll love it. So, go love it. 
Yeah, it feels like we're trying to downplay expectation now, but it is yeah. terrific. It's there's terrific. nothing there's nothing to dislike. <laughs> but in, but don't go in thinking there's nothing don't to dislike. Don't go looking for things to dislike <laughs> because everyone said it's terrific. Okay. It is very, very that's a, violent. That's we should a probably make that review. point. We should make that it's point. It's an eighteen, it's yes. full on violence. So, you know, if you don't like if you want hammers to be used for like proper DIY tasks yeah. rather than Death. Death. <laughs> yeah, this is not the film for you, but um it is awesome. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that's not the only film out this week, of course. Most column inches this week in every newspaper in the country, it seems, have been devoted to the return of Sacha Baron Cohen in his new film, The Dictator. So uh, so what do we think of this? I feel uh, sort of reaching the point with Bruno that it's kind of like a bit of enough with Sacha Baron Cohen mm. to a point. It, the whole kind of persona thing for me, I mean, in that film, it had the tastelessness, but didn't have, and it had some funny bits, but yeah. not enough of them to warrant his kind of Stick. assault. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an assault on, on good taste. And we don't necessarily want good taste from him at all, but we do want funny. And yeah. this film, I think, brings a bit of that back, which is, which is kind of mm. nice. And... Bruno seemed to be maybe running out of ideas. This is very different. Yeah. This is more sort of coming to America than a the kind of agit doc type style that he's had with these characters before. I think what he's had before, I mean, he was able to go in kind of under the radar and, you know, shock people into giving some kind of honest response to his characters. And I think he's just become too pro- too high profile yeah. to do that. And he's had too many lawsuits filed against him and, and it's just become too difficult. So I think he, he, he ha- probably had to go this route. He probably yeah. had to go the, you know, scripted film route. Um, and, and I think, you know, it does succeed from my money definitely better than Bruno but possibly isn't quite as hilarious as Borat although still really really as wrong as Borat I would say <laughs> you're right about Bruno I think that was part of the problem that people did sort of know who he was mm. by that point so I think the problem with Bruno is that very, it was a weak character it was yeah. he wasn't I think he was pointing the finger in the wrong direction with Borat he was it, it was laughing at people's own kind of prejudices about something mm. but it felt like more with Bruno as if he it was he was bringing prejudices and kind of saying it yeah. wasn't it wasn't as yeah. it wasn't as smart as Borat mm. was it was very it was very obvious I think it started off well it started off lampooning the fashion industry and the whole circus of like that side of media and that bit was good enough mm. but you're right after that it suddenly he just sort of was laughing at other people laughing at middle America again which is just an easy target for him I think Um, I think there's a question of smartness over this one a little bit as well because while it is you know there's some very funny things that in there about sort of foreign policy about the paranoia in the west about the sort of Middle East and, and you know it's rulers and it's mores and it's whatever um, at the same time it's not quite clear who it's attacking I don't think always you know it, it's clear that the dictator himself is not a nice person but at the same time we're almost supposed to root for him for parts of the film and it, it's it's a bizarre mix for me it didn't feel very focused in its targets a little bit yeah well maybe part of what he's trying to do is just say I, well, you'd have to. I mean, you'd like to ask him, but he obviously doesn't talk out of character that much. So, mm. but but maybe it's to say, um, actually, everything's a little bit crazy in terms of the whole, you know, war and terror, blah blah blah. I think. Oh yeah, no, I, mean, I think that attitudes, in the, in the attitudes sort of... and paranoia. Sure. Just, uh, you know, I think that comes through late in the film, and he's clearly, you know, he's poking the West as well as as anybody else. Um, and you know, there is that big scene late on where that's clearly what's happening. I just feel like it's not as focused again and it's not as as kind of driven by a clear concise view of anything really it's just kind of going for 
gags and poking yeah. fun at things there's some funny control. there's some funny some really funny stuff in it though yeah very, very i really enjoy stuff. the bit with the when they're in the helicopter flying over new york and they're talking in arabic about you know his new porsche 911 and all the <laughs> americans sitting opposite them can hear is this this kind of guy talking about nine you know 911 <laughs> and pointing at buildings and doing these kind of like big explosion type mm. noises um so yeah he's he is a funny man and this is perhaps a new direction that that, that you know yeah could reinvigorate his career phil mentioned the um him doing interviews in character i kind of feel that's part of what's making people a bit tired of this what seems like a shtick because yeah. he is a, he's a really clever comedian and a mm. very good actor of mm. this type but i'm so bored with him doing stuff in character in when he's doing interviews yeah it just it becomes really unfunny really well my, one of my first ever interviews was with him in character as bruno and if a day goes by without someone you know a friend or whatever emailing and saying i've just watched your interview and i'm still laughing you look ridiculous <laughs> um he was you know like wearing a tiny top hat and uh, wearing the full Bruno stick and doing it all in character and it's kind of excruciating to be confronted with because he's a very funny man and uh, it's all a little, it was all a little rehearsed should we say I just so. I find it a really strange thing that he mm. doesn't I know he has done some I know he did one with Howard Stern yeah. I think it was this week and he's really interesting he's really engaging and really entertaining and that kind of sells his movies more for me than him doing yeah. stuff that wasn't necessarily good enough to be in the film. We've had we've had a, a yeah I, I do agree. I think the publicity blitzes are, are a bit much sometimes and and also I mean what's worth saying actually quickly is that not everything you've seen in all the trailers is actually going to turn up in the film. Mm -hmm. There's been enough stuff that they actually had clearly a lot of still very funny outtakes to to chuck into the trailers and and you know so it hasn't maybe. Um, taken away from the film as much as uh, it might have done in other cases you know other cases they put out that many trailers that many clips they've basically given away every joke in the film so that's not the case here you'll be glad to see but uh, but it is you know yeah a lot of publicity so maybe try and again let the hype leave you as you leave this as you enter the cinema to see this and judge it on its own merits um, Empire gave this three stars right that's correct so we liked it uh, but maybe not quite as much as we loved, say, Borat. Also out this week is Two Days in New York. Now that sees Julie Delpy writing and directing and starring in a sequel to Two Days in Paris. And this time her character's family visits uh, her new home in New York and they cause all manner of romantic chaos in a very witty and smart comedy that we gave four stars. Uh, there's also The Source, which is a kind of a gritty rom-com, if that isn't a complete you know, um, contradiction that we gave, um, that we liked. It's about a village full of women who withhold sex from their husbands until the, those husbands agree to help them carry water from the distant well that is their only supply in the village. Uh, and that got three stars. And if that doesn't float your boat, Powell and Pressburger's classic, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, is reissued on the big screen this week. And if you haven't seen that, you really, really should. That is a nailed on five star classic that is both comic and tragic. And um, and even by the Sanders of Powell and Pressburger is one of their best films. So check it out. So that's your lot for this week's podcast. Um, next week, we'll be talking to Gareth Evans about The Raid. Um, and we'll be looking at the return of Men in Black 3, uh, the return of Wes Anderson in Moonrise Kingdom, and the return of the large ensemble kind of rom-com in What to Expect When You're Expecting. If you miss us in the meantime, you can head over to the website at empireonline.com or buy a copy of the magazine. It has James Bond on the cover and is well good inside. And with that, the only thing left to do is to say goodbye to Ollie. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye to Phil. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Thank you for listening.